I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the final chapter of the book of Joshua. This is certainly the first time in my ministry as a pastor where I have preached fewer sermons than I have chapters in a book. You'll remember that I took several chapters in summary of the allotments of the land, and so here in this 18th and final sermon from the book of Joshua, don't worry, I'm not going big Eva, because we're getting to the book of Romans, and who knows how long that may take. Joshua 24 is a wonderful conclusion. Joshua is reaching the end of his life, Eleazar, the high priest. And they are leaving behind for the children of Israel not only another reminder of the faithfulness of God, but in particular, a contour, a reflection of the covenant of grace such that those to whom they are speaking may be confident that they are truly, truly the children of God. Joshua chapter 24, I'll begin reading in verse 1, I'll read the whole chapter. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Hittites, I'm sorry, I went up a line, the Hivites and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. 
Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the God of the Amorites, gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote the words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart each. To his own inheritance. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground, which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come to the close of this glorious book given to us for our good, a true record of the history of your people, we would ask that we would not only be hearers, but that we would believe what is said and live according to it, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen.
I remember quite distinctly the first time I realized I loved history. It took until I was a seminary student at RTS in Charlotte, and I took a leadership course taught by Harry Reeder, a pastor formerly of Christ Church, now of Briarwood, Birmingham, Alabama. And it was a, a class which covered vignettes of certain leaders, generals, at the time of the war between the states, often called the Civil War. That's not what I call it then. At that time, uh, we focused on men like Lee Jackson, uh, a course that is sure to be condemned by many as politically incorrect, but much to learn from these faithful men. Uh, General Jackson was a faithful believer, both he and Lee both. Uh, Lee was an Episcopalian or Anglican. Uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson was a member of the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, there in uh, the area around Lynchburg, uh, a faithful, godly man. Uh, and as Jackson was on his deathbed, if you know anything about that period of time, he was actually shot by his own soldiers as he was returning from a scouting mission uh, when it was a bit dark outside, having been riddled uh, with bullets. They weren't really bullets, but rounds. Uh, He developed quite an infection, and at the end of his life, as he lay there in bed looking to the day of the resurrection, he said, let us now go over the river and rest beneath the shade of a tree. He spoke of the peace uh, that awaited him and the life that is to come. Water is a prominent figure in the scriptures. It is symbolic of life coming forth from a place of nothingness or death. We see it at the creation of all things. When God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made out of nothing everything in the space of six days and all very good, as our catechism teaches or confession, and we find the Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters and out of that Preformed stuff, God brought forth life. Now, my point is not to say that there was water existing before the creation of all things, but it is this glorious picture that from a state of being under, even related to the idea of death later in the Old Testament. God brings forth life. And we find that principle echoed throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and also here in Joshua. And it is no mistake, the Holy Spirit, here at the end of this book, remember there are no chapter and verse distinctions. These things were not there in the first autographs. These things were placed later so that when I'm preaching, I don't say, all right, I want you to turn to the last fifth or 5% or what, the last 20th of the book of Joshua and somewhere on. It's easier for me to say, turn to Joshua chapter 24 and we'll begin reading in verse 1. What we find is God identifying 
expressly, explicitly his covenant favor to the second generation of those who were brought out of Egypt that they were in fact true Israelites. It is a sign of his covenant faithfulness that the water of baptism marks out God's covenant people from the rest of the world. And as we reach again, as I said before, the end of this book, we find God reminding, expressing his covenant faithfulness in these glorious covenantal terms. Two points that I want to make as we move through this chapter. Number one, a history of God's faithfulness to Israel. Sounds like the bo- like a boring title to a history book. A history of God's faithfulness to Israel, and then second, a covenant at Shechem. Let's look at the first point, a history of God's faithfulness to Israel. Now, we find a broader accounting, a broader review of the history of Israel with a different emphasis than what we find in chapter 23. In chapter 23, we read um, of God's covenant faithfulness in particular to that generation. God has been faithful to you in delivering the land to you. And then in chapter 24, the Holy Spirit, through Joshua, communicates, opening up the aperture a bit, that your history falls in line with the greater history of Israel, and he goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of Israel. And in speaking of Abraham, he doesn't just begin with Abraham. He begins with the father of Abraham, Terah, the family that Abram came from or Abraham came from. He came from a pagan family, and he crossed through water, through a river, from one land to another. We read, uh, beginning in verse 2, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times where they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan. So from one side to the other, this is the river Euphrates. It is God's way of communicating that Abraham once belonged to one family, he passed through water in essence and became, by God's grace, a member of another family. And then he relays the same way that happened, not only to Abraham, but to the children of Israel. As they left Egypt, what did they go through? One particularly large body of water, the Red Sea. In that, they were separated from Egypt and the gods of Egypt. And in this same way, the second generation of Israelites were brought through the Jordan. And after each of these movements through water, not to mention Noah, we find worship subsequently happening, the renewal of the covenant of grace, and victory, the establishment of a family as those who bear God's name. This is what we are doing in baptism even to this day. We are saying through baptism that we have died in a sense to one way of life, one family, 
And we have been brought into the covenant people, the covenant family of God. And it is not just adults who are one side of the river. Hey, kids, how are y'all doing over there? Our children are not Egyptians. They are what? They are members of the family of God. Now, what do we call such people? We call them Christians. And our hope is that they may not only bear the name of Christ corporately as those who are brought into the family of God, who not only hear the promises of God, but that they, in due time, may say, along with those who rightly understand, that whatever God asks us, we will do. Is that not what a profession of faith is? When someone, out of a glorious awareness of what they have been saved from, out of the fruit of a transformed heart, a new heart, a reborn life, says, whatever God says, I will do. Is that not what you want for your children, parents? However small a voice, however tender a heart, however immature and even naive that may be. Listen, the whole nation of Israel was naive here when they were making the promise. Whatever you ask, we will do it. I mean, how many of us, even on our wedding days when we were making vows to our spouses, really knew what that would entail when we said, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. And then you wake up one day and go, this was harder than I expected. Well, yeah. This is why the real benefit isn't premarital counseling. It's not postmarital counseling. <laughs> Post-nuptial counseling. Is this what you expected? Covenant faithfulness? What Joshua is saying to the second generation is, you're not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. This is your history. This is your legacy. It's one covenant. And this is why. We are not baptized into Moses. We are not baptized into Joshua. We are not baptized into Noah. We are not baptized into Abraham. We were with them baptized into the one who is our covenant head. And who is that? Who led Israel through the Red Sea? Who led Joshua and the Israelites through the Jordan? Who led Noah through the flood? Who led Abraham across the river Euphrates? Who was always at work? Who was the one who unites us? It is none other, as Jude would say, than Jesus. Jesus is the pillar of smoke and fire. He is the one who met with Abram that night during the dream when that golden censure walked between the torn animals. And only he walked. Why? As a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness that all that God demands, Christ will fulfill. And if we are to dwell on the right side, that is the proper, not right versus left, if we are to dwell on the right side of river, we must pass with the one who went into death and came up from the grave. Which is why Jesus says in the Gospels, I will give you no other sign than what? The sign of Jonah. Jonah was not in that fish just waiting. Jonah died. Jonah drowned. And then, miraculously, God raised him to life. The fish spit him out. 
And he went to Nineveh to preach. What is the sign of Jonah? That the one who would come would die, be brought to life, and the gospel that would come forth from that mouth is a gospel of death and resurrection. That is the gospel of the covenant that God makes with all of his children. That leads me then to my second point, the covenant at Shechem. So we find then, in light of this history, take time, go back through it, read it. And when you read it, don't just say, well, this is a great history of a people long ago. No, this is our history. It's just a very ancient time in the life of the church. Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, what was the common refrain? Would you not just let us go back to Egypt? What was the danger with that? If Israel was allowed to go back to Egypt, who would they end up worshiping? The gods of Egypt. Hence the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. What was Israel endeavoring to do? To worship the one who was on the mountain that they could not see? Through the works of human hands. This is why we do not make images, because that is not how we are called to worship. We do not access the one in whose presence we are brought by anything man-made. And God knows the tendencies of our hearts. The draw to meld pagan religion, the old gods, the old ways with the one who has revealed himself in glory and grace. And so Joshua says, again, verse 14, or continuing rather, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, serve someone else. Except what comes with that kind of rebellion. A coming judgment. A warning. Now, Joshua says, you have the option here. You can look at what all God has done and you can say, no, we will serve other gods. I will serve the Lord. And even as the people hear this, they say, no, 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 no. No. We have seen what that gets us. We have seen what the gods of these pagan nations, these demons, have done to destroy civilizations and lead people astray. And under the water of the Red Sea, Egypt was judged. We don't want that to happen to us. They rightly say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. This is the language of, I do solemnly swear, as God is my witness, to seek to pursue the Lord in every human endeavor. It is a vow they're paying. That is what we find here. It is a renewal of the vows of of the covenant of grace. And this renewal of covenant vows is always a part of corporate worship. This does not mean we lose and regain the benefits of the covenant of grace. What it means is we are constantly looking and seeing and evaluating, is it the God of Yahweh? Is it, is it Yahweh or is it the gods of this earth that we should fear? Sin, all sin, 
is a reflection of our own tendency towards idolatry. In fact, the scripture speaks of sexual sin as idolatry. And when we bow our hearts to those things that are perverse, we show ourselves to violate the terms of the vows that we have made. Now, vows are important. In fact, the only faithful speech that we should make in response to the speech that God gives and the terms of his covenant is, whatever you tell us to do, we will do it. Anything less is faithlessness. It is disobedience. It is waywardness. But it must not only be something that you say, you must mean it. In fact, even when the table is fenced, though I think last week I I neglected a portion of it. There are three things that are said. Do you trust Christ as Redeemer, the Savior of our sins? Do you live in light of that profession? If you do, then come to the table. And the place where that confession is rightly heard is not your closet. It's not behind closed doors. It is before men. It is a public profession. And so a Christian is not someone who is a Christian only inwardly. A Christian is someone who outwardly confesses, whatever God tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. But what happened with Israel? Ultimately, what happened? Well, verse 19 is a bit of a prophetic statement. You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Israel does show that they would later be faithless. But that statement concludes with verse 20. You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions if you serve him and also foreign gods. We understand jealousy when it comes to relationships. Sweetheart, I promise that I will love you the whole of my life, but there's someone else. What would you expect to have happen if you were to propose such a thing to your spouse. Um, Excuse me? These are not the terms. This is not how it works. This is not a covenant of marriage. This is a farce. In the same way, our God is a jealous God. And we ought not to speak out of both sides of our mouths, which is very easy to do and inevitable. And so, what is offered within the covenant of grace, even for those who struggle with covenant faithfulness is an altar where our sins might be forgiven. Within the covenant of grace, there is not only a call to allegiance, there is the provision for failure. Now what Joshua is talking about here is not faithful men and women and children who struggle against sin and seek salvation through the altar and the sacrifice. He is talking about apostasy. He is talking about the wholesale rejection of all that God offers in his covenant. The only right response is to what God has said, yes, sir, we will do it. Whatever you have said, we will do it. And we are to write that down, not only in our hearts, but we are to make it known with our lives 
that we belong to the Lord. And so what does that entail? The putting away, verse 23, of the foreign gods which are among you. If we were to speak of the order of salvation, into which category does this belong? Sanctification. Sanctification. I remember years ago when I was a freshman in university, uh, there was that period right at the beginning of the semester, the first semester, the fall, where all the fraternities endeavored to bring new recruits in. And I remember the first day I show up on campus of college and there was a fraternity um, whose property was adjacent, well, catty corner across the, an intersection from the dormitory in which I lived. And the way in which they were advertising the merits of this particular fraternity was they had an old beat-up jalopy. And you could go and pick up a sledgehammer and just destroy a car. Now, ladies, this is what men like. Not only do we like to build, but we love to take hammers. I love tearing things apart. When we did a remodel in our bathroom, we hired someone to do the remodel, but I got to do the demo. And I got a little tired of it, but in the beginning, I really, really enjoyed ripping down the sheetrock, just beating stuff with a hammer. This is how we are to think of our assault on the things in our lives, the high places, the Asherah, the idols. Take a sledgehammer to them. Just beat the tar out of them. You can't hit them enough. Now, John Owen was a much more sophisticated theologian than I am, and he would say this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Maybe if he was alive in the 21st century, he would say, take a sledgehammer to your sins. Beat the tar out of them. Do not give them any occasion to allure your hearts away from your covenant redeemer. Because what does Joshua know? What has Joshua seen? He has seen Israel move in a kind of up-and-down, wayward fashion in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. Is Israel unique in this? It is easy for us to look back and say, well, if I had been there, dot, 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 it would not have been different. Have you been camping? Have you ever complained while camping for two days? Imagine wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and never saying boo about it. (laughs) I probably would have complained. I would have complained. So what is asked? Put away the gods of this earth and serve the Lord only. What is the only right response? We will do it. And not only to say we will do it, right? That is the beginning of our lives in Christ. That's the moment when we say, and we know it's evidenced of a new heart. When someone comes up here and makes their vows, it's one moment of many in their lives. And that is why we emphasize not only the call to holiness, that initial profession of Christ, but walking with him faithfully through the whole of our lives.
And that is what Joshua leaves Israel with. Be faithful. And the thing that they erect as evidence or testimony of the covenant faithfulness of God and the testimony or covenant that they have made with him is a rock. Why a rock? Because rocks don't really change. There's a stone in Iceland. I can't remember the name of it. Husafelt stone. Now I've remembered. It takes a minute sometimes for the memory to spool up. And the Husafelt stone is this stone that just stands in the middle of nowhere or sits. And it's waiting for people to pick it up. It's one of those legendary stones. Women, there's another thing you need to think, know about men. We don't just like to beat things up. We like to just pick up random stuff as feats of strength. And if you are very, very strong, you can go over there and you can pick up this stone. And if you are still even stronger, then the mission is do laps around this circle and see how many you can get while holding the stone. Make sure you post it on social media, something like that. That stone is set there for centuries. And it connects generations, one to the next. And when you go and you pick up that stone, what you are thinking is, there are men who hundreds of years ago picked up this stone. And it connects you. There is a stone that even to this day connects the entire body of believers. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you want to turn with me, you can. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Well, I got that reference wrong. I'm referencing uh, from the scriptures. How does copy and paste go wrong? The text in which uh, the writer of scripture speaks of the stone of offense, Christ the rock. And for some, he is a saving stone, a stone upon whom we build our lives. But for others, he is a stone that stands against their waywardness. But what he is, is a covenant marker. Someone we anchored to. But more than that, he is a testimony not only of men... The faithfulness of God, right? He says something to men about God. But he also says something to God about men. This morning, as I was preaching through the book of Revelation chapter 20, I spoke of the one through whom we are judged and we are ultimately delivered when our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All must come to Christ. All must contend with him. As Joshua is departing this world, as Eleazar is going into the next life, they are reminding Israel that there is one with whom we must contend. And he serves as a witness. 
He is the stone. He is the altar. He is the sacrifice. This is what we bring to men. And it brings us to a very simple exhortation that we are to build our life upon the rock. That is why the church can willingly and readily give up men like Joshua and Eleazar. Joshua died at 110. Moses died at 120. Eleazar lived a good long life. Both of them went to be with their fathers. Some of the bones of their patriarchs were preserved. But all men go the way of what? What do we say? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But the legacy that God is building through history, through men, is a legacy that is not built upon those men as the stone. It is a legacy that is built upon Christ. And so I want to say two things in closing. Number one, count it a privilege, a glorious blessing to be part of such a legacy. Think of that. The OPC is just the continuation of the church at Shechem. And not only that, not only to count it a privilege to be part of this legacy of Christ's building, the holy temple, but even more so, count it a privilege to be members of those who were built upon Christ. As we move to the book of Proverbs next week, even then, as we endeavor to be wise, we are doing so as those who continue to lay upon the foundation of Christ Jesus. And so by God's grace, may we be those faithful to this covenant. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we ask this evening.